Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. It's the 411. You're tuned in to 411 Teen, a weekly program for teens, families, educators, and other interested folks. 411 Teen provides a forum to examine and discuss various issues and events that confront, intersect, and sometimes interrupt our daily lives. The Garbage Bag Girl, authored by Celeste L. Edmonds with Richard Paul Evans, number one New York Times bestselling author, is a poignant memoir. Celeste successfully survived a journey of darkness and abuse. At the age of seven, she was taken from her addicted parents, becoming a ward of child welfare system. Forced to be a mother to her younger siblings, she negotiated a dangerously dysfunctional world as victim and survivor. By the time she was 16, she had lived in 30 different cities. Celeste Edmonds, I welcome you to 411 Teen. Celeste is on the Zoom platform. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, yes. Thank you for you. Um, I, I I, just don't know what to say as I, as I was sharing with you before uh, we went on air. Um, your book was a powerful narrative. It was just very dynamic. Um, what, was, what was the impetus for you writing The Garbage Bag Girl? Well, 30 years ago, when I um, first started working for Richard Paul Evans, uh, our charity founder and also uh, co-author of my book, he asked me, I was his personal assistant, and he was learning about my life, and he asked me if I would write my story. And I was in my early 20s and just said, you know, I just, I don't, I don't think I can. I don't think I'm, I'm ready to, to talk about it or write it. And so he wrote a book. Mm-hmm. a fictional story of my life called Finding Noel that did really well. And then fast forward three years ago when I became executive director of the nonprofit, he approached me again and asked if if I was ready because it would not only probably help me a lot, but it would help our charity and help people understand the children that we serve better because they are in state custody mm-hmm. and they're confidential. So people, you know, contribute and donate and do all these wonderful things with children they're never going to meet, honestly. So it kind of started as that. And then um, so I took a I took about a year to decide and then it took about two years to write. Um, oh, okay. But it, it definitely was it definitely was that process of, of just kind of, you know, deciding why I wanted to do it and then what it was going to feel like. And and here we are. Here we are. How difficult was it for you to write? Um, you write about memories that I'm sure you had stored away for years. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how how did you go about that? How did you approach that? You know, and and you did it in two years. That's that's pretty fantastic in itself. Yeah. So the 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 process uh, was that I would. Uh, I first got a great trauma therapist, highly recommend that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started down the path. And what I realized um, in working with my trauma therapist is that what happens to people, especially children, when they're in something 
and they're they're living it and they're going through it, they're not really going through the right processes in order to certainly heal. Mm-hmm. They're just pushing through. So writing it kind of forced that process to happen, whether I was ready for it or not. So I was mad for the first time at certain things. I was, I got very, very angry, very emotional. I feel, I felt grief for the first time. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of grief over a loss of a childhood. And I, I had to go through that um, in order to kind of come out on the other side, which is a very empowering feeling. You get mm-hmm. to the other side of something like that and you're like, wow, that was awesome. I did it. Uh, you know, that was a big accomplishment. So that that part became very healing on the tail end. But even after I wrote it, I, I definitely questioned whether I was going to publish it because I wrote about things in mm-hmm. there that I'd never even talked about or told anybody. And so I started thinking, well, it's not really about people I don't know, but what am I going to do with, you know, people that I know that are going to read it, like my children? What is mm-hmm. what does that even feel like? And I was at a speaking engagement and I had three young women in their early 20s come up to me and all of them were crying. And one of them said, I was homeless. I lived out of my car and I just want to thank you for sharing our story. Mm-hmm. And it really was a very emotional experience for me to realize that, um, you know, there's half a million children in the foster care system at any given time in the United States. And I feel like they, they get forgotten because I think people think, Oh, they're in a system they're taken care of. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's somebody that's got them. And the reality is many of them, that is not the case. That is not what's happening for them. And so I just, I want to bring constantly bring them forward. I want us to keep remembering that they're children. They they oftentimes mm-hmm. don't feel like they have a voice and they want the same thing as all other kids want. And they're just they the older they get, the more they get caught in that system, the less their chances are of being adopted. And that, you know, those outcomes become very dismal from a statistic standpoint. So I just want to make sure that we, you know, in everything I can do to constantly remind people that they're there and that they matter. And those are little humans that, you know, to no fault of their own, we took them out of, out of those situations, right or wrong. And they have a loss. They Mm -hmm. have a loss that they're dealing Mm -hmm. with. And that has to be addressed as well. And, and that is a loss that will be with them for a lifetime. That's right. That's right. And you know that when the work you do, that just doesn't go away. It does not go away. Um, Who, who was your target audience when you were writing this book? Did you have a target audience? I mean, were you just no, pouring out? Just were you say. just yeah, pouring no. out? You know, yeah. what, where you had been yeah. and what you had experienced. Um, so I don't know. <laughs> you tell me what it was. It was that. It was um, the objective was just to 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 be as vulnerable as I could uh, because I wasn't sure I was going to write the some of the early on graphic stuff. Mm-hmm. I, I very, very much questioned that. And would that even be beneficial? And it, and my, my trauma therapist said, I, yeah. I think if, if you're going to go down the path of being vulnerable, right. And you're, you're going to take that leap, go all in Celeste, do everything you can to be as authentic as possible, because you're not going to have conversations with people about what's really happening. If you're not talking about what really happened to you. 
So she started me off down that path. And obviously, it was all based on my comfort level. But um, it's also why I, you know, address a very, very difficult chapter for me to write, which is the bullying chapter. Mm-hmm. It that became mm. by far even out even after writing about saying goodbye to my father for the last time, um, that became the very most difficult chapter for sure for me to write. And I, I think it's because it really made me face myself and admit what happened and, you know, come, come a, a 180 on that with mm-hmm. myself. And, and I wanted people to know if, if I'm being vulnerable again, then, then I want you to know who I am. And there was a part of me at that time that was not great, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, of and course. I, yeah. And people will say, oh, that's okay. And it, you're excused. And after everything that happened to you, nobody yeah. blames you. But no. it's not really the point. That's, yeah. You know, I, I'm so glad to hear you say that. Yes. Yeah. I want to be accountable to it. And I want people to also understand how that cycle and that mentality mm-hmm. can build up for somebody. Because we're not excusing bad behavior. But no. I think we can certainly understand it. Exactly. And understand ourselves better. And understand those that it's happening to. And so I think that all has to happen by being very real and very transparent. Well, I think you did both of those things. What was, yeah, I mean, I just thought it was very powerful and I've worked with those kids and I, I, you know, know what many of them go through and just to have you put it on paper. I think it is good reading. It's almost, should be required reading for (laughs) all the kids that are in, you know, um, you know, care, uh, child care, um, as far as their state system, okay, their state welfare system. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I, it happens. I do appreciate you saying that. I do yeah. appreciate you saying that because I do think that, um, you know, you you guys that are in the trenches of really trying to help, obviously you know what you're told and obviously you know what you're trained on, but I think yeah. to but, maybe have somebody talk about it mm-hmm. after they've gone through it and after they've, you know, mm-hmm. gotten the support and the help that they need certainly has got to glean a different perspective, right? There's got to be something in there. Mm -hmm. It does. It certainly does. I, I was truly moved. Okay. I I can't say anything else. Um, Talk to us a little bit um, about the significance of the title. I think I know it, but you know, share it with the listening audience. Tell them what that significance is. Yeah, so it started off by that that concept of what was happening at the time, which was the every six months, you know, my stuff going mm-hmm. into a, a garbage bag. But as I talk to children in child welfare that um, are in there, especially as they're aging out, that's a very influential group mm-hmm. to make significant differences in. So between the ages of 18 and, and uh, 22, they were coming forward a lot uh, when I first started speaking about it. And we were talking about really the, the long-term mindset and where you're at from a mental health perspective, perspective on how you view yourself because of all those transitions that, that you went through. And, and especially as an older child, when you, you know, the older you're in the longer you're in the system, the less probability you're going to be adopted for sure. Right. And, so that constant reminder, and oftentimes, like I was told, you're just told all the time, you're you're just lucky. You're lucky to even be here. You're uh-huh. lucky to have this family. You're lucky to have these genes we're handing down to you. Yeah. You're just lucky to have all that. And 
And the reality is, I, I remember thinking, man, everybody's version of lucky is a lot <laughs> different than mine. <laughs> but it's such a constant that over time you're like, okay, well, I guess I guess they're right. And you really start to, to shift that. And then what happens long term, as you know, is the trajectory of how you make decisions, the relationships that you have, your ability to bounce back that all starts to greatly, greatly change mm-hmm. because you are, you are in that mindset of, of, of your lack of value, which turns into the lack of love for yourself, mm-hmm. which is a deeply embedded, right? Really big problem. And so, um, the, the book is, is much more evolved into the mindset of, of how we view ourselves as the garbage we put into that bag. Well, hold your thoughts for a second. We're going to take a brief break. You're tuned in to 411 Teen. I'm talking with Celeste Edmonds, and we're talking about her recent book, The Garbage Bag Girl. Just tuning in, the program is 411-TEEN. I am having a very dynamic program with Celeste L. Edmonds. She's sharing her story. Celeste, at what point did you recognize that everybody's life was not like yours? You know, lots of times kids think, well, this is just the way it is, until you find out that, no, this is not just the way it is. Yeah. That's that's a really great question, and I haven't actually had anybody ask me that. Oh, really? um, yeah, but you are you are a psychologist, so I guess I expected to come from you. But um, I don't. You're right. In the beginning, it was not like that. It it it. I say the beginning, even through the age of like seven and becoming a parent, when I shouldn't have become a parent, that still didn't feel mm-hmm. abnormal because there's there's something that definitely kicks in, you know, that says. This is just what you do to protect. I didn't ever question those decisions or if I was the one that was supposed to be doing it. I was angry that certainly my mother was not doing it, but I still didn't question whether I should. And so I I obviously was old enough to know that it wasn't right, but I also didn't question whether I would make those hard decisions. And so that for me was all about still keeping our, you know, wanting our family to stay together. I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't think, oh, there's a risk that we wouldn't be together. And, you know, when my dad was in a healthy phase and he wasn't using, he was a very loving father. He told me he loved me a lot. He was proud of me. I would grow up to do great things. I mean, he was kind of my biggest fan at that time until he wasn't healthy, right? Right. But the contrast that really happened is I go from a family that has um, substance abuse issues and, but very loving, Mm. uh, father in, in his way to showing lots of affection to now this contrast of a family choosing to have me and having this very manipulative, psychologically messed up, right? Everybody has that response. (laughs) Everybody has that response. That's a common thing. Okay. Uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. It's like of all the people, people are mad at, it's her. (laughs) For sure. <laughs> so, right, I jump forward into that family dynamic. There's no substance abuse, and yet there's a hundred percent lack of love. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until losing my siblings for sure. Okay, I'm in. I'm in that courthouse, and that caseworker makes the poor decision to reunite us and have us say goodbye all at the same mm. moment. 
I drive away thinking. Um, that was just cruel, you know? That's a loss. Yeah, that, that was the time when I thought, okay, well, now there's nothing else. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm officially, you know, in this environment with this family that doesn't want me. I no longer have my siblings. Like, that was the very first time I recognized this is not okay. None of this is okay. And I, I don't know if I'll be okay. Right. Mm-hmm. So that tends your question. And it was yeah. at that time, I would have been nine at that point. Right. Yeah. Share as much of your story as you can with the listening audience, because some of this, I think they need to be able to put into a context because you and I are talking because we know what's going on, but just share as much as you can, um, where you've been and, and, and what you've had to endure. I mean, I know you can't share the details and I don't want you to, they need to buy the book, um, and read it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But okay. For the listening audience, share your story. So really the the book Your Nightmare. Okay. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The book really has a strong emphasis on the time I was most impacted by the system. So that takes place between the years of seven to nine. Mm -hmm. Um, three, you know, very critical years for me. Um, and that was was about removal and experiencing life in drug rehabilitation centers that are much more designed for an adult Mm. atmosphere than for children. Um, And then foster homes and family members and just transition after transition. And then there's a moment when I'm told, you know, your brother and sister were sent. We were, we were living in New York and my brother, I was told my brother and sister were sent back to Salt Lake to be adopted and, it was the first time I learned I would not go back and be adopted with them. And that was it. I didn't realize until as an adult, you know, working through my stuff that the reason that was even bigger for me is because for me, that was a loss of a child. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the loss of a sibling because I didn't know how to have, I didn't know how to be a sister yet. And so that was a, that was a huge turning point. And I come back to Salt Lake from New York, I'm given 24 hours to spend with my dad to say goodbye. He gives me a very great blessing that, you know, many children in child welfare never get. Mm -hmm. And that is he took me through the journey of being addicted at a young age because he had the polio disease before there was a vaccination and, and, you know, all the things that that did for him. He allowed me to ask very hard questions about addiction from an eight-year-old perspective, he answered them all for me. He reminded me it wasn't my fault. He encouraged me to tell my siblings it wasn't my fault. Like that, that was such a gift that time, um, at that moment that I just don't think kids in the system get. So I'm super grateful Mm -hmm. for that. He decides that he's going to spend, you know, uh, all the holidays with me that he's no longer going to spend. So he buys a bunch of little gifts and wraps them all. And we have that awesome experience, which later become my treasures. Cause I, you know, I know they're going to be the last things I ever get from him. We make mm-hmm. a stop, um, on our way back to the foster home, um, at a seven 11. And right when we pulled in, I smiled at him and I was like, Oh yeah, I know what we're doing. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and we walk in and he buys me Funyuns and chocolate milk. And, mm-hmm. you know, now I don't know why that was so exciting, but at the time well, that, was. that was, 
just something we always did together, Mm -hmm. you know? That's why it was exciting. Um, Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, No, I mean the taste of it. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm like, really? (laughs) But at the time, it was awesome. And so we have that experience together. I think through it enough to know that obviously when I'm done with this, this is trash. But Mm. I'm not getting rid of it. And I wash it all out and I keep it with my treasures and it's in this, I think in this safe place. And, um, yeah, that moment, that was a (laughs) really tough moment of having, losing that stuff because it, it really, after losing my siblings and my parents, that was, that was the last thing. And my extended family member, that was the final thing that I, stuff that I had that had any connection at all for me. And so, well, those were your cherished items. Those were your very cherished items. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, today it's very, very sweet, the gestures. Um, at book signings, I have people that um, show up with bunions and chocolate milk for me. <laughs> people I don't even know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. People I don't even know. How sweet is that? That They'll is. They'll just be standing there in line with bunions and chocolate milk, which is very, a very, very kind gesture for that so many reasons. very and kind. So, yes. Yeah, so very. that's fun. But, um. So yeah, I, I go through that and, and this, this mother, Kathy just, oh. just hates me from the beginning. You know, she well, just, she when, couldn't have any more children. Yeah. So and it was like you were an object. Gift. You weren't even yeah. a person. You yeah. Were, was, if I remember correctly, she acted like you were a gift, a toy, a thing for her daughter. Yeah, I was. Yeah. I was, it was very clear that it was going to be, it was a Christmas present. It was a Christmas present. And, and her daughter yeah. wasn't even satisfied with the Christmas present because you weren't who, I, it was, it's like the daughter looked through a catalog and decided who she wanted to be her sister. or She what? did. It was a binder. Yeah. Oh, really? in, those, in those days, yeah, we had three inch binders and you would go to, um, you know, adoption parties. And you, if you're a kid and you're in, you know, say five or six, three inch binders on a coffee, on a bunch of coffee tables, you're, and you're staring at those thinking, mm, I really hope I get picked out. Mm-hmm. And I hope that my bio, you know, is good enough to make somebody be interested in me. It's a, it's a very humiliating feeling to go mm. through that process. And, um, that's what they did. And they chose Buffy, you know, Buffy was the girl. Buffy, yeah. And yeah, so there was that whole, that whole scene you read about where they're, they're, I'm literally sat in there with my garbage bag and they're having this, fight back and forth and she's freaking out it's not Buffy and Kathy's trying to reason with her like Buffy was taken and I'm like who the hell is Buffy and they're just (laughs) you know having this exchange I'm like what is happening right now and so I and then I I I have I always had kind of this um very my my number one strength of resilience growing up was optimism Mm -hmm. and I still turned it thinking, you know, it's not so bad to be a Christmas gift. I mean, there could be worse things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a good big sister. So I'm going to do this. I'm all in. And I and I really had still hoped that that would be awesome um, until it, it wasn't. And the rules were, you know, something I could never manage in, internally. Everything oh. was, a, was just a mind game. It's, mm-hmm. She just wanted me to know that I wasn't her daughter and I was lucky to have her, but yet I still had to call her mom so that she could say, well, I'm not your mom. Mm-hmm. But if I called her by her first name, then I was inappreciative. So there was just. You couldn't win. Always, you were in a no, no win and situation. And she set it up that way. Yeah. yeah, she set it up that way. It was designed to make sure she had power. And so by the time I was 15, I knew it was her or me. Mm. 
Uh-huh. She's going to she's going to kill me or I'm going to kill her. I mean, it was so dramatic in oh, my yeah. mind how that was going to happen. And, you know, there's a lot of Jennifer's in my book. But the one that you meet at that time is is the one that picked me up and carried me down the street uh-huh. <laughs> and said, my mom's going to take you. And so I started down that path at 15 and um, went through a lot of a, a lot of transition, a, a lot of drinking, dropped out of high school. That was a very tough time yeah, for me. But you and know- I mean, given what you had been through, yeah, uh, there's no apology yeah. for what you did or what you went through. I mean, you know, I mean, if yeah. you were drinking and whatever, you yeah. had to. Survive. I was just, yeah, I was just cope. at a loss. I mean, I yes. was like, mm, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't even know where to go from here. I just, I seemed to check out for a bit, and so. What was did, your survival? And... I mean, just excuse me for asking this now, but when you talk about this and you think about it, what was your secret for survival? Celeste, you are a real strong individual, and you were a really strong, determined child. To be able to go through all what you went through? I mean, you yeah, went through a know. living hell. Yeah, it was very hard time. And I have some, I had some old, um, old poems that I wrote during that time that I recently ran across. Um, Being, being drunk at 15 is a very interesting, Mm -hmm. you have a very interesting perspective on the world. And I ran into some old poems that I wrote. And I really was a train wreck. Um, I don't write about the, the time that I that I tried to overdose and my and one of my friends helped me through that that was a that was a tough time but I think the moment I I went into those kind of behaviors I quickly realized that I I still had a fight left and I wasn't quite done mm-hmm. and I didn't know what that looked like but I knew it wasn't an, an end I knew nothing you know it wasn't going to end at that point and I I definitely had people along the way that you meet in the book that stepped in at very unique times to, to tell me that I was important and to help me, you know, to the next phase. And those are the people now that I'm trying to circle back with, you know, there's five of them, I think I've talked to two mm-hmm. and they're really the, really the people that I owe that gratitude to, because at the time I didn't know how influential they were, but now I look back and they all saved my life in during that time, mm-hmm. during that moment. Um, to just get me, you know, to that next place. So I, by the time I moved in with my, my, who I call mom today and who I dedicated the book to. And she adopted you, right? Yeah. I mean, that was really just another, yeah, another six month stint. Mm -hmm. And so when she called me, when she came into the kitchen and I was cleaning one day, because that's what I do. And I don't want people to kick me out. Um, (laughs) She said, can I talk to you? And I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. I had my garbage bag in, in the other room, in my sister's room. And I remember thinking, it's no big deal. I can be out of here in about three minutes. <sighs> and instead, she said, you know, her infamous line, and which is home is where they have to keep you. And I was like, what? What does that even mean? <laughs> and she explained to me what that meant to her, that you, you can challenge all you want, but you don't kick your kids out. It's just not right. what you do. And I was like, okay, tell you do. So I just, I just didn't believe it. It took a, it, we look back now and joke about it, but at the time it took, it, it wasn't funny. It took about mm-hmm. 10 years for me to quit pushing on her to accept that. And that was even after I was a- adopted as an adult. So the joke kind of became, 
you know, that I came for Thanksgiving dinner and never left because I got <laughs> dropped off in a Winnebago about two weeks before Thanksgiving. And so on the nine year Thanksgiving anniversary, I made a toast to the family and just said, thank you. You know, that this is the longest I've ever been with one family. And she literally jumps up from the table with pure excitement and says, let's make it official. Oh. And I was like, well, what should we make official? She said, well, let's adopt you. And I'm like, I'm 26. <laughs> and I I have, I was married at the time and I had two children and they call you grandma and I'm, you know, I have a new last name and everything's fine. Yeah. And um, she shared with the family um, her own loss of a child, which during that time for her, there was, there was no recognition for women when that happened. They were really just sent home. Yeah, but there was the also another benefit for her adopting you, considering, you know, you still had that Kathy in the background there. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. Was, that was a yeah. very, very wise move. Mm -hmm. And I went into it with that business mindset. Mm -hmm. I was like, yeah, you're right. We probably should do this because I would never want Kathy to have access to my children if something right. happened to me. I, I oh. That's why I went into it. Mm -hmm. And when we were standing in the courthouse before a judge having with our attorney having to testify why I wanted to make this change, because you still have to go through the whole legal process, um, even as an adult, mm -hmm. oh, uh, okay. we literally stood in front of each other and like we faced each other in front of the judge, held hands like we were exchanging wedding vows. Mm -hmm. And she whispers, what are you going to say? And I was like, I don't know. What are you going to say? <laughs> <laughs> and she goes on to share that, you know, that experience about losing a child yeah. that she always felt she was supposed to have a, another baby girl. And I had a, you know, a very, very significantly empowering moment at that time because I turned to the judge at that very moment and I was in a brand new courthouse in our state, beautiful brand new building. And ironically or not, behind me, across the street was the old courthouse, which was now the county building that I was adopted uh, in at the age of nine. Mm. And I had a very profound moment of just without hesitation saying, I'm so grateful to be standing here today and literally looking forward and making this decision about my life that is right for me. Because ironically, in that courthouse that is now behind me metaphorically and physically I get to say goodbye to a life that everybody kept telling me I was lucky to have mm. and now I really am yeah. lucky yes and it was right it just turned the whole meaning of it just completely shifted and and turned into okay this is really why I did it it really is not too late to find a home <laughs> wow that's 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 the best part of it I think when I read I'm sure it is to yeah. you too okay um what, sure. what was, and you may not be able to answer this right now because shortly we're going to take a break, but I'm going to pose the question to you now. Um, and you can probably think about it for 60 seconds or so. When you think about all that you have experienced and, and, and writing this book, what was the most challenging component of writing this book? I mean, given, you know, how you had to negotiate a toxic world, what was the most challenging? We're going to take a brief break, but we'll get right back at you for 11 Teens. 
Views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and contributors, and not necessarily those of WFSU Public Media. What's the 411? You're tuned in to 411-Teen, and I am talking with Celeste Edmonds, and she has a new book out, The Garbage Bag Girl. And it's a very powerful narrative, and I suggest all of my listeners read it. Um, Celeste, will you share, first of all, where we can get the book? Yes. So if you go into my website, CelesteEdmonds.com, there's information about me, the charity work that we do, and there's links to being able to buy the book. Or you can go directly onto Amazon. Okay. Spell all that out slower for everyone, (laughs) okay, if you don't mind. No problem. That would be Mm C-E-L-E-S-T-E-E-D-M-U-N-D-S.com. Okay. All right. Before we took a break, I had asked you to, to... Think about what was the most challenging component of writing this book? Living through it, it felt, writing it felt like I was living through it Mm. as if it hadn't happened yet. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, you know, because of what we were talking about earlier, where I, when I was in it, I was just in it and I was just making decisions that felt right. And I didn't process how it made me feel. And so I didn't feel, I didn't feel physically what I felt when I wrote it. I didn't Mm -hmm. feel emotionally what I felt till I wrote it. I didn't go through Mm -hmm. any of those processes until I put it on paper and my mind and my body and my heart and everything involved felt it for the first time. And I was very heartbroken um, for that little girl. And that that's what made it so hard um, and made it so, so difficult is that it was in all the other times before that, when I just spoke of things, I think I had a really unique ability to speak as if it was a third person. I was referencing someone else because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. in my brain, I thought, mm, yeah, oh, that, that was probably hard for her, mm-hmm. but I, I never gave myself the credit or, or certainly set up any parameters that, that. I could understand that it was me. And now I think I probably wasn't ready to do that before. Um, I think a a lot had to happen in my life. Um, You know, I had to grow up and and learn some skills to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I had to work in our, in our nonprofit for a while and realize what we're capable of. Um, I had to get therapy I had to find loving relationships. Like, I think I just, I I had to go through a few things Mm -hmm. in order to get to that part where my brain, which is quite a miracle. I think Mm -hmm. the the brain knows when it's ready Mm -hmm. and that's why the body will manifest, you know, physically Mm -hmm. how it's feeling Mm -hmm. is because I think it was just time and it was hard. It was definitely the hardest thing I've ever done, but man, coming out on the other side was pretty awesome. Well, the child welfare system is broken, and it miserably yeah. failed you. However, you stated um, that the fault, the fault is more than the people involved. What did you mean by that? Would you expound on that sentiment? Yeah, I don't—now that I'm in the nonprofit sector— 
I'm absolutely confident that we don't just have a bunch of people in this world and in this community that are wanting to wrong children, right? Mm-hmm. That are wanting to just right. go into people's homes and take people's children out. I think, I think it's the system that's complicated. We have a bunch of laws that are absolutely designed to protect children. And one would argue that many of them should be there. Um, but then you get in it and there's structurally just so many restrictions on how that can happen. Mm-hmm. And the mazes that you turn in order to make that happen. And I think if, if you're a child that gets caught in that system and the options aren't as available for you, depending on you know what you're going through, or there isn't a home that is available that can help take on what you're going through, or you're older and you're, you know, you've been deemed unadoptable, your uh-huh. path to it's, it's like uh-huh. when you have that flow chart in school and they say, if this happens, go here. And if this happens, <laughs> go here. And it's right. And it's like, okay, that's great for those that that path is working on. But what, what happens when you, when that happens and the right and left options are not for you, uh-huh. right? The system's not designed to be fluid that way. And so you really get caught in a system. And I genuinely think, yeah, you have lots of people that want to help you through that. No one would argue that, but the system structure itself. So I, so I would say it's this, you know, it's that system structure that failed me. I don't think it's people, mm-hmm. just a bunch of people that were sitting around wanting to make sure Celeste just didn't have good options. Right. Um, but, but also I was in the system 40 years ago and it's truly remarkable, hasn't what has not changed seen, that much? For sure, I'm telling you. <laughs> but there are a few things that have. There and are I am a great, few things that have. That. <laughs> but a lot of that was was right on for 2024. Yeah. What? And then yeah. I'm sure you weren't even aware that these were techniques. I I don't know. First of all, what would you, what suggestions would you offer to to the system? I mean, if you were going to tell the powers that be some things they need to do to, to, you know, right some of the wrongs, some of the mistakes that occur, what would you say? What kinds of things? I mean, as you look at the system, where are the breakdowns? What are the, some of the things that the professionals can address that they just may not be aware of. I mean, first of all, I know they're overworked and they're underpaid. But anyhow, I want to hear it from you. What do you, what do you think? You've been in that system. You survived it. Well, I agree. I agree with you. I mean, one of the things that put um, many, many states, including ours, mm-hmm. Utah, into a lawsuit 30 years ago was that caseworker loads were so high that that was a big reason why kids were being mistreated in care and we even had children die in the foster care system Mm -hmm. is because people can't feasibly get to that many cases and so i think about when when i know when i was was in child welfare you know i was a manila file folder so i i always Mm -hmm. visualize this stack of manila file folders on it on it on someone's desk and all the all of them have a kid's name on it and if you weren't one of those kiddos that were causing trouble and created what we call in the system a disruption in your placement 
uh, you know, you're not making enough noise, you're not causing problems. There was no reason to really go back and visit you because you have to put out the fires first. Uh So I know we've gotten better at mandating how many visits have to happen with caseworkers, but I am also very, very aware that that's still not an option with the amount of cases they have. So then you, you know, you, you back into that and you're like, okay, well, they have to have less cases. That means you have to have more caseworkers. So I, I, I know our state has made tremendous progress. I'm, I am very, very proud of us. We, our system has made changes like, um, you know, making the, the parameters of being a caseworker drop down just enough that if you're on a trajectory of earning that degree, you can already start in the work. Mm-hmm without having to have your, you know, your master's of social work before you can even launch into that. I think that's a a beautiful transition um, to to help those also get hands-on experience. So we've just recently started that. We've also started um, what's called the the family meeting, which is, I use the word family loosely because when you're in child welfare, right, your family is a little different than maybe (laughs) what our family looks like at home. Um, And that is about all really recognizing, which to me is always an important thing to remember that all the relationships in the life of a child belong to that child, whether you or I like it or not. Mm -hmm. And that means that you have to constantly remind yourself that it's important to them and not discount it. So if you're trying to describe to that child why they can't have that relationship, then you still have to do it from a a standpoint that it's, you know, from, from being a psychologist, that it still matters to them and they have that right to grieve it and they have all that right to feel how much that hurts to let go of it. You can't just rip those relationships from these kids and tell them like, you know, they told me, well, when they're 18, when you're 18, if you want to look them up again, that'll be your choice. But until then it was just so insensitive from that perspective. And I think there's, again, there's half a million children in foster care at any given time. And, mm-hmm. and at some point they, they very much become a number. And I think we have to keep having the conversation over and over and over again and beating it into people's heads that these are numbers. These are yeah. kids. These are yeah. children that have been yanked out of their environment. Whether we all think that decision was right or wrong is pretty irrelevant in comparison to how they feel about it. Mm-hmm. And I wish very much that all children would have to have a mandated psychologist. I really, truly do. I think that it's fairly optional today. It's also based on are they are they Medicaid approved? You know what I mean? It's just a lot of weirdness in that. You know that and Uh it's just so wrong to think we're literally going to take those children out of that environment and we are not going to assign them a mental health support person from day one. When in my opinion, a child's age, a child's soul ages 10 years, the moment they get out, they, they go into that system. But what happens developmentally? They're not 10 years older. They don't Mm -hmm. look 10 years older. They don't Mm -hmm. feel 10 years older. They're not 10 years smarter, Mm -hmm. but their, their soul greatly ages. Um, that way, um, from my experience, and you're right, you're seeing things and hearing things and experiencing things that most adults don't ever feel. Did, no. And so you have a gap you, you between there and there that that doesn't make sense for you. And someone has to help you unpack that. Mm-hmm. 
And so I know it's an expense issue. I know it's expensive, yeah. but the reality is it's way less expensive now mm -hmm. than it is for what we're having to do to help them later. That's true. Right? There's right. no oh, there's yeah. no transition there. Right. So yeah, I empathy, more empathy, more mental health for them because they're the ones that are going to cause the most trouble and weigh the most on society later in life. They just are. It just by mm -hmm. nature of what we've what decisions we've made on their behalf. And it isn't being critical, it's just being as honest as it's I can. It's just being real. <laughs> That's yeah. all being real. Yeah. Yeah. What right. suggestions would you offer to kids who are in similar situations today? Well, first of all, when you talk about being real, the very first thing I acknowledge with children in our shelter program and is what people didn't acknowledge to me, and that is I'm super transparent. If they're between the ages of seven and nine, maybe even up to age 10, like mm -hmm. I was, I just come right out and say, I get down on my knees if, if they're shorter than me so that I can look right at them Good. and say, I was, I was you at your age and I am very, very sorry for what you're going through. This is not your fault. And I know it sucks. Just flat mm -hmm. out sucks. Mm -hmm. Like I get, and right away they're like, mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> they they kind of just have this, yep. okay, somebody finally said it, that this mm -hmm. just is not right. So I always start from that place just to let them feel like it's it's relatable um, and they can kind of let down their guard. And, and, and then I get to follow it up with, I have a, a really important question. I always ask him first, I ask him if, if they love themselves, especially if they have a sibling. Mm -hmm. And here's why, because most of them will either say, yeah, super casually, like they look away. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I do. Or they'll say, honestly, no. Mm -hmm. And I have a really great opportunity to point to their sibling and ask them if they love their sibling. And of course, what do they say? 100% of the time. Of course I do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I do anything Quickly. for my brother mm -hmm. or sister. Yeah. No, there's not even a hesitation. And so there's a really profound moment right there to, to say or to ask, why does she or he deserve your love, but you don't deserve it for yourself? Mm. And mm -hmm. it's it's not an answer that's going to happen at that very moment, for sure. Um, but it absolutely sits in their mind. And they're thinking very hard on it because they're trying to unpack what that even means. <laughs> yeah. And it it then starts, you know, other conversations like they've loosened up. They're sometimes they're a little emotional, but we really get to start talking about, okay, so what happens from here? What does your life look like? And, you know, maybe some of them have dreams and some of them don't. Um, and we kind of go down that path, but the the reality is at some point there's an accountability piece that has to happen. Has to and out. I'm really comfortable having been there saying a lot of decisions are being made for you right now that are hard and a lot of them you don't even understand. And I'm sorry for that, but at the same time, you still have to make the best decisions that you know are right for you. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, 
you are going to be on your You're own. Gonna, that's true. Right? You are. That's it. Yeah, you are going mean, to. You are going to be in a life where no one is it. making those yeah. decisions. Right? Everybody's making those decisions for you today, but at some point, you're making them for yourself. And I think you you need to get your head around and you need to get used to what do you get to do to empower yourself? Because like I said about their soul aging 10 years, right? They're, yeah, they're already in it. There, it's that not, is so talking true. to a six-year-old that comes to one of our shelters is not like talking to my six-year-old at, right? when she was six, my daughter when she was six. It's just not the same. Well, so, Celeste, we're just it, about out of time. I love when you said that earlier. <laughs> I know. I I was just saying we're out of time, and I have so many questions. I want to pose this one before we close. I mean, this last minute. How do you feel about organized religion? Do you find that your experience with organized, yeah. you know, just briefly? I know you can't answer it long because we only got about thirty-five seconds for you to answer this question. And then oh, I had gosh. so many more. Okay. I wanted to talk about the Christmas box <laughs> international, but uh, before we close. I just want to say, you know, I applaud you. I mean, I applaud you. You are one dynamic woman. So, but tell Thank me about you. organized religion very quickly. Thank you. Uh, ten, ten seconds. I know that's awful to put you like that, but we got to go. <laughs> Did it influence you? I mean, you can Not just a fan. It. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm it, not a fan because uh -huh. for me, it influenced all the decisions uh, that weren't healthy because people took that power. Yes. And they excused everything that they were doing because of that. And that's why I'm not a fan. Now, I'm a okay. fan of spirituality. I, I I'm a fan you. of your higher power all day long, right? But yeah. not that. <laughs> well, I got to thank you. It's time out. Um, I've been talking with Celeste Edmonds, uh, one dynamic woman who has written a powerful negative. Garbage bag girl. Celeste, thank you so much. To my listening audience, I appreciate your time and your ear. Tune in next week, same time, same place, to get the 411 on 411 Team. <laughs> 411 Team was produced by Dr. Liz Hollyfield. Technical assistance was provided by Evan Rossi. If you would like to participate in the 411 team or have suggestions for discussion topics, call 850-645-7200. You can listen to previous episodes of 411 team at wfsu.org.